really quick, I forgot last week as we were kicking off this series to explain to you why you received a card with a little gold star. I know we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but I forgot to mention it last week, but it's what you want to bring with you every single Sunday because that is your attendance record, all right, for Sunday school and... What you want to do is hold on to this, and at the end of the series, for those with really perfect attendance, now, by that, it might mean you're for the entire series, we might find that nobody shows up to the entire series. So it might be one star less, two stars less. You want to hold on to that, come every week, get a star, and in the end, everybody that was of that layer of closest to perfect attendance, your card will be dropped into a jar or a bucket or whatever cool receptacle we have. It will be a drawing. And we're going to give this away right here. This is an ESV study Bible. This is a genuine leather Bible. This is an awesome Bible. This, this is the grand poobah of all Bibles. And so this is something we will give away. That's going to be that Sunday uh, just before Christmas, I think. So uh, you want to keep that in mind. So make sure you keep bringing that attendance card. It's a part of being a part of Sunday school. Ryan got on to me. We, uh, he said, Matt, you don't have any sword drills for Sunday school. I failed. Uh, no sword drills. For those of you that know Sunday school, you know sword drills. If you don't, your parents didn't love you. All right, so, all right, so let's go ahead and get started with the word of prayer. Get underway. See what Jesus has for us today. Jesus, I thank you so much for your grace and your love. Thank you so much for your truth. And I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you speak to us, that you take this story that's so familiar, but speak to us in ways that are perhaps unfamiliar. Matter of fact, going a little bit deeper, I'm praying that you, Holy Spirit, will go to places that my words can't go. That you will go to that place in the soul, the heart, in the mind of every person here to cause them to go, man, what do I have at my disposal? What are the options and opportunities I have through faith to face hard times? Jesus, I pray you would do that in powerful, powerful ways. We thank you for your grace, your truth. And your goodness to us, in your good and awesome name we pray. Amen. Well, as uh, a pastor, uh, I have the opportunity, you could even say the responsibility sometimes, to help people face their problems in life. And lots of people face lots of problems. There's problems of all sorts of sizes and varieties and challenges But then also what I find as a pastor is that sometimes people, when they face their problems, they they have this problem, this situation, this dilemma, and the way they're reacting, the way they're feeling is disproportionate to the actual problem. And, and I think in part, this is something that develops within our own culture because what has happened to us as Americans with our affluence, with our opportunities, is that we have set in our mind an ideal, right? That life should be this way and I should have these things and everything should go according to plan. We have this ideal. And then when life isn't playing out at the level of the ideal, we go, oh, wait, wait, reality is a problem, Because again, I want ideal. What I have is reality. And for me, then reality is problematic. And I don't like reality. I want ideal. So when it's not ideal, I'm suffering. When we fail to experience the ideal, we think it's a hardship. I'm hurting. It's a dilemma. In psychology, this is called FWP. 
And if you're not familiar with FWP, uh, one of our resident pastors, Steve Mount, sent me a video this week that kind of is a service announcement for FWP. And I think you're going to understand what I'm talking about once you see this. So go ahead and show that uh, quick service. Every year of every day, thousands of people fall victim to FWP. I'm so cold. Starving. Nobody cares about me. Also known as first world problems. I'm so cold. Somebody set the AC to 72. I needed it 73. Starving. Oh, it has leftovers. Nobody cares about me. Nobody commented or liked my status. Hi, I'm Ryan Higa. And for just five hours of attention a day, you could help somebody with FWP. Everyone keeps putting so much pressure on me. I don't know what I want for my birthday. I have too much chips for my dip. If I open a new dip, I'll have too much dip for my chips. Why does Apple keep making new iPhones? Now I have to get another one? They've been through so much struggle. The remote's over there. But I'm all the way over here. So much hardship. My iPhone 5 is too big for my skinny jeans. So much attention. 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 I poured my cereal without checking to see if we had milk. So please, show your support and send them this video. And show them how much we care about their FWPs. I bought too many groceries. Now I'll have to make two trips. All you have to do is call the URL, 1-800.org. And we'll send you the FWP helping kit, which includes a bridge, a straw, and a full cup with a cover. Here's a bridge. Now get over it. Here's a straw. Now suck it up. Here's a full cup. Now shut the full cup. With your help, we can put an end to FWPs and focus on the real problems, like starving children or homeless people. Because if you're complaining about something as silly as the iPhone 5, just wait till you see the iPhone 6. All this, this is the iPhone 5S. This is the iPhone 6. I don't want to hear anything about shut the full cup. I don't want to. <laughs> Ryan said that was permissible. I just go off of what Ryan tells me. So, that highlights brilliantly sometimes what we suffer from, which is our problems are so big because we don't have the ideal. And yet, in reality, in life, there are real problems. But sometimes our problems are smaller and what we think is a problem is just a complaint, right? We're just complaining that the ideal isn't perpetual, that comfortable isn't continual, that easy life isn't always my life. And yet, I, I, I think what we need to do today is rescale how we see life, how we approach it, how we interpret it, how we absorb it, how we try to live it in a broader, grander, greater perspective. Living life in the contract text of true faith. True faith. Because here's the deal. Real life as we know is never going to be easy. It's never going to be convenient. It's never going to be simplified. It's never going to be carefree. We know that. But here's the thing sometimes we struggle to embrace. And that is this truth that when life is hard and painful and taxing and is taking from you, that is the place where we most grow. We most develop. Right? We do not develop the deepest parts of our character while we're vacationing on the beach. We just don't. 
We do Ecclesiastes on the beach. We have good food, drink good wine, enjoy the wife of our youth, take in some rays, you know, enjoy the view. But character is forged in the furnace. Character is never fluffed, all right? It's never fluffed. It is forged. It is pressed and pushed, pulverized in us. And I know we don't always like that, that truth. But, but it really is true. I mean, I, as I reflect on my own life uh, and the last handful of years, I see that the greatest growth has come through the deepest pain. The deepest pain. I've seen where God has had to grow my faith, not academically, not my, me memorizing a verse where I went, oh, yeah, that's faith. I guess it's uh, belief in the things that are unseen. Yeah, I've affirmed that verse. But it was only when God said, now, I'm going to shove your life into a place that is so utterly out of your control, you have to make one or two choices. Trust me or do it on your own. Right? And it was just so confronting what to do. But I realized in all of it, it was his love and grace. It was kneading out of my life the bad. And welding into my life what was needed and good. And that's what the story that we are looking at today is all about. So, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Now, you're going to go to Genesis 22. I'm going to go ahead and backstory this a little bit so you get a sense of things because this is the story of Abraham. He starts off as Abram, eventually becomes Abraham. All right? So this is the guy we're looking at today, and we're going to look at some of his family in conjunction to this. But I want to start with Abraham because you've got to understand how this guy's life starts. He starts in the land of Ur, and he is a pagan. He is an idol-worshiping, false god-bowing pagan. But God, in His sovereign grace, says, I am going to call out Abraham. I'm going to set my covenant in Abraham. I'm going to place my love on Abraham. Just as we learned last week in the flood of Noah, where Noah was just as bad as everybody else, but then God just invades his space and says, I'm going to use you and choose you and save you and do great things through you. So God is going to do the same thing with Abraham. So he says, man, I call you into my covenant. I'm going to do things with you. And so then we see in chapter 1 of Genesis, I mean, verse 1 of Genesis 12. You're not there. I'm there. You're in 22. I'm at 12, but let me read this. It says now, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram or Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will dishonor those who curse you. And in you, that is your offspring, verse 7, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Go back to what God told Adam. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And then God came to Noah, and he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, but you know what? It's going to be difficult, because the world is going to be against you as you seek to go out. But then God comes to Abraham and says, now I want you to go out, and I want you to fulfill and fill the earth as well, but this time it's going to be with blessing through your offspring. I will bless the nations. Even think about back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God gave the gospel when he told the serpent, there will be an offspring that will destroy you. 
This is the fulfillment of that. It, 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 we're starting to see the picture come together in Abraham. His offspring will change the world. Well, that's an awesome story. That's great. And Abraham was a great man. Well, yes, he was a great man, but he, wasn't not, he was not always a faithful man. He was not always focused. There was good days and bad days in the life of Abraham. A good day was the day he left home. I'm leaving the idols. I'm leaving the pagans. I'm leaving the false gods. I'm going to go and I'm going to fulfill God's promise to me. I'm going. It was a good day, but then there was bad days. There was days where he was fearful. He worried more about the, the power of men than the power of God. And so he lies once to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, hey, who's that woman with you? She is smoking hot. And it's his wife. And she's like in her 70s. She was a fine-looking older lady, apparently. Pharaoh thought she was hot. And so he says, uh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. So Pharaoh's like, sweet, she's available. Right? And that creates all kinds of problems, because he lies, and God has to intervene, and it's a mess. And you would think he would learn from that, like, never again will I say she's my sister. But then again, he's passing through a region, Abimelech, Caesar, says, wow, that's a hot older lady. And once again, what's he say? Uh, she's my sister. Right? Guy doesn't learn. So you had good days and bad days. It seems that they were very advanced in age and they had no children. And, and Sarah, his wife, feels very guilty about this, that she's barren. So she comes up with this brilliant idea, which is, Hey, Abraham, why don't you do the nasty with the maid to have a child? That's a bad idea. If your wife ever comes to you and says, You should have an affair, don't. All right? Just don't say no. Honey, I love you. Put your hands on her shoulders. I love you so much. I'm not going to do this because it's going to go bad. And it goes very bad. He says, that's a good idea. No, bad idea. But he thinks it's a good idea because she says that they do. It's wrong. And they have this child, Ishmael. And he's not the child of the promise. He's not the one that's going to be the offspring that blesses the nations. That's not going to be his role. But he goes Hugh Hefner for a little while here and totally misses the track. Bad days. As his son grows up, Ishmael, the tension gets really hostile in the home. And eventually, Ishmael and his mother, Hagar, are, are, are sent away. He's sent away as a teenager. He's a bitter teenager. And you want to know the fruit of a bitter teenager? Everything you see in the Middle East today hails from that bitter teenager leaving that home. Right? When you think of Israel and the Arabs fighting all the time, all you have is the offspring of Ishmael fighting the offspring of Isaac. That's all you have. The bitter teen that is forced to leave his father's home. Bridge burned. Right? So bad days and good days. But then finally, at a hundred years of age, God's promise is fulfilled. They have a son, Isaac. Isaac's name means laughter. Laughter. There's laughter in the home. Sarah, whose name is princess, is truly a princess. And she's had this laughter son. Abraham enjoys watching the laughter of his son. And when you get to Genesis chapter 21, you see where everything is starting to round out, right? So Hagar and Ishmael, they are sent away. So the mistake, it's gone. Abraham signs a peace treaty with Abimelech. So all the pressure is off. He worships God, so praise is given. And then it says in the last verse of chapter 21... And then they settled in for a long time. 
That's a real important phrase there, long time. It's like, ah, retirement. I mean, the guy's over 100. He was worthy of it, right? He's had this hard life. He's followed God for 25 years. I mean, think about it, the fact that at 75, he left everything he knew. At 75, he left home and country and friends and family. And now he's been faithful as much as he could for 25 years, but he's had stumbling blocks and problems in the midst of it. But now everything is right-sized and everything is good. And now it's just enjoying God. But it's really there again where we start to get comfortable that God says, now it's time to stretch. When we start to settle in, God says, oh man, settling in is like ceasing to exercise. Settling in can be a place where you become too comfortable, too fulfilled. And so God says, I'm looking at my servant Abraham, and I need to forge him. Not fluff him, forge him. And so we enter into the story. And as we read this story, I'm going to give you just a little challenge on the side. I want you, as you're listening to the story, to see how it parallels another story that you might be really familiar with. I don't even tell you the story. You'll pick it up as you go. You'll be like, oh, that reminds me of something. Uh, That reminds me of something, too. So does that. So does that. You'll see. But it starts in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. It says, after these things, after the peace treaty, uh, Ishmael's gone, Isaac's born, they're all hanging out for a while, everything is good. After these things, it says, God tested Abraham. Now, at this point, Abraham's maybe 112 to 120 years old. I mean, can you imagine being that old and it's then that God says time for a test? I don't know about you, but if I'm Abraham, I'd bust out my AARP card like, bam! No, I get 20% off this test, man. I, you know, like, this isn't even fair. I mean, I'm, this is the least opportune moment in my entire lifespan to bring a test. And you're going to bring a test now at the end of all things as the twilight years are rolling in. And by the way, for young people, that's not time out vampires. That's just a euphemism for old age. All right. So as the twilight years roll in, you're going to bring me a test. Yes. Because here's what tests do. And I'll explain the difference between a test and a temptation in a second. But here's what a test is going to do. And you have to understand this. We all have to understand this. What testing does in our life, and we hate it. Oh, we hate this. What it does, it brings the real us up to the surface. The real us. See, I started thinking I'm a pretty good guy. I, I started thinking, I'm pretty understanding, pretty easygoing, I'm not judgmental, I give people the benefit of the doubt, until somebody steps into my life who is hostile, criticizing, harsh, undermining, and there I realize that there's stuff in me that kind of comes up, and I would love to call it righteous anger, but it's not. Right? That's how I want to defend it. Oh, I'm just being, not just righteous anger, because they suck. You know what I mean? Like... No, that's just the real me bubbling to the surface. I'm finding out the real me. Testing brings out the real me. It makes you aware of your own heart. makes you aware of your own biases. It makes you aware of how much you want to take control versus how much you give God control. Right? That's, That's what these tests will do. And so God is going to test Abraham. Now understand the difference between a test and a temptation. 
A test comes from God so that you will succeed. I want you to capture that. If you write down any phrase, write that down. A test comes from God because he wants you to succeed. The enemy, though, will bring a temptation that causes you to succumb, right? That's the difference. God wants you to be tested to succeed. The enemy wants to tempt you so as to succumb. Now, sometimes some events are simultaneously a test or a temptation. Because it's going to come back to how we face it. If we say, oh, it's a test, I'm going to walk in the Lord, I'm going to keep a right heart, I'm going to keep a right disposition, I'm going to keep a right perspective, you know what? That's for our success, for our strengthening, for character to be forged. But again, forging comes through fire. But if I give in, get angry, take back control, just attack, well, then I fall into temptation. And that test will lose its capacity to build something in me. Right? That's the difference between these. And so what God is going to do is He's going to look inside uh, Abraham here and He's going to crush some idols. He's going to look inside Abraham here and, and, and He's going to see if Abraham really believes or if he just thinks. And I want you to understand there's a difference. There's a lot of things we as Christians think We think a lot of things about a lot of things. But if we don't truly believe it, we're not going to act on it. Right? We can affirm a lot of truths. God is sovereign. God's in control. Love my enemies. Do good. Uh, Believe that all things work out for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. But then if those times come and we don't act based on what is true, you know what? Again, we just think these things. We don't believe these things. It's not enough to just have it here. It's not even enough to just have it here. It must be here and come out here. Or it's just academic. And sometimes God puts us in a place where He says, all right, we're going to test where this really falls in your life. Just as He tests Abraham. And so it says, and He said to Abraham, He said, Abraham. Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. This is where the bottom drops out of the story for us. Because what we know is there are times, and we've known those people, maybe this is even you, where God in His sovereign prerogative said, I am going to take a child that someone loves. And that is a very hard thing, and we don't even know how to compute that. Well, if God is good and loving, why? And we get into this whole dilemma. But we know just the hardness of when one is taken from us that we love. Here, this is completely different. God isn't saying, I'm going to take your child. What He says to Abraham is, I want you to give your child. I'm asking you to give him. That is a whole different game. And, and when we see the story or we hear it, we're horrified by it. Like, <gasps> why would God do that? Well, that's why he gave his first one when he says, it's a test. And we go, oh, okay, okay, this is going to go okay. He tells us it's a test so we know that the outcome isn't as bleak as we could perceive it. The other thing that we have to embrace about this is God's already made Abraham promises. He's going to fulfill those promises. 
Right? He's going to keep his word. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that God cares for Isaac more than even Abraham does. Did you know that God cares for your kids more than you do? We, we don't always believe that. This is one of those tests of faith again. Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe God is in control. Oh, yeah, 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 I trust God with my kids until there's some real challenging thing. And then we sometimes want to take the control back. We don't really trust them. Sometimes it's because our kids are idols. Right? We love our kids more than our God. We think we can protect our kids more than our God. Right? So this even challenges idols. But see, Abraham hears this and he sees what God is asking. God is not asking Abraham to murder his son. He's not saying, go and kill your son. I love my little nephew, Wesley. That's not what God said. Kill him! You know? It's not what Abraham heard. What Abraham heard was, sacrifice your son. Sacrifice. Give back to me what I have given to you. Give back to me what I have given to you. Now, is this going to be easy? No. Look at the words. Your son. Your only son. Now, Abraham had another son, Ishmael. He's gone. Bridge burnt. Angry teen. Now in his 20s and doubly angry. Right? That's, that ship has sailed. So this is his only son. And it's the son whom he loves. Abraham is not some impartial father, some cold patriarch that's like, I only have children to do my yard work. You know, it's like, that's not it. He loves him deeply, tenderly, and truly. Isaac is probably roughly, we could guess, between maybe 12 and 18 years of age. I look at my own son, Gray, who's 12. He's my only son. He's the son that I still get to wrestle with, but cuddle with. He's still at that age where he's reliant and dependent, but he's also testing becoming a man. It is one of the most special times I've had with him in my entire life with him. I mean, there's something profound about that particular age. And, and, and then God says, all right, Abraham, that, that's, that's the age in which I want you to give him back to me. And when you see that word sacrifice, it, it, it's, it's not easy, and God knows it's not easy. In fact, when you see the word take your son, it's a really rare word in the Hebrew language. What God is literally saying, please, I beg of you, take your son. See, God is not cold and impartial in the request either. It's as though God knows, I'm asking you to do something that is so unbelievably hard. I'm begging you to trust me. Please believe I have your best interest at heart. I know this is going to seem completely nuts. It seems like I'm going against the flow of the plan. But you have to believe me. I care more for you. I care more for Isaac. I care more for the world than anything else. And so, again, please do this. There's times in our lives where God is saying to us, please, just do what I'm asking you to do. We go, no, no, you don't understand. That's too hard. It's too complicated. I'm risking too much. I'm too afraid. And God says, please, I'm begging you, trust me on this. You just got to trust me. If you take this back from me and you do it on your own, it's going to be far worse. Trust me. And so God says, trust me. But boy, trust is hard in this. Because again, understand, he wants a burnt offering. Here's where our series is uncut. A burnt offering is simple. He's going to take his one 
only loved son. He's going to set him on an altar. He's going to slit his throat. He's going to drain his body of blood. He's going to dismember his son and burn him on an altar. That is what God has requested. It isn't just stab him in the heart and be done. Abraham knows the weight of the request. He also knows the request is because of sin. So, if anything, it's Abraham's sin. Remember all that stuff? Lying to this guy, lying to that guy, not trusting God for the promise, all that. God says, all right, well, well, I've made a covenant with you, but there's still sin. Sin needs to be addressed. So I want you to give your son as your sin offering back to me. The firstborn isn't sacred. Now, again, Isaac is really secondborn in lineage, but he's firstborn in the program of God. So weight, heaviness. It's a test that aches right down to the bone. And it says in verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning. I think so Sarah didn't say, Hey, where are you going? Um, going fishing, honey. Alright, so, rose early in the morning. And it says, He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and went to the place which God had told him. This is just a weird little thing because, again, the order's all backwards. Right? You would actually cut the wood, and then you would gather your workers, you'd saddle the donkeys and go. But you can already see what's going on in Abraham. He's just in the days. God wants me to give my son. I, I, I got to get the, the guys. Uh, no, I'll saddle the donkey. I'll just saddle the donkey. Um, I need, I got to cut the wood. Gotta, I gotta cut. You ever been there? You ever been so swimming in the thing that you can't even think straight? That you can't even sleep? I mean, I, I, can't, I think he got up early just because there was no way he was sleeping. He just tossed and turned all night. Tossed and turned, tossed and turned. I got to do this, got to do that. I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey God. It's not easy. I, I know what this is. I know what this is. I'm going to do it, but I'm, I'm lost. Well, then they set out, and it takes three days to get where they're going. Three days. Three days of reflection. Three days of contemplation. Three days of the weight of this. Three days of thinking about my little boy laughter. Laughing through the house. Laughing in the fields. Laughing on the donkey when he would ride as a little child. And, and now I'm going three days. And i got to imagine over the course of that time there are moments like we all face where we're trying to trust God but we think, oh, but baby, I could do this better. I could do it different. I can run away from the problem. I can disavow my allegiance to God. I'll go back to Ur. I'll worship other gods. So many options. I'll get mad at God. This isn't fair. Why is God doing this to me? I thought God was a loving God. Why would he expect this? This is what we say. Why does he think I can handle it? I can't handle it. Doubt. Dread. I would start picturing, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do when the knife first goes, I'm not going to look at his eyes. I don't, I don't know how to do this. Three days. It's like a hellish eternity in three days. And then they get to the destination. It says, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. 
And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again. This is just a powerful moment where there is a sense of, he knows what this is. So it's conviction. And and, and he says, we're going to go and we're going to come again. Again, there's this sense of faith in Abraham that God is going to reconcile this somehow. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 17 to 19, what you see is that Abraham presupposed that God would resurrect Isaac from the dead. Right? He just thought, this has got to be the plan. So he says, we're going to go and we're going to worship and then we'll come again to you. And then in verse 6 it says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. It's like now he's a pack lamb, you know? It's like it's not enough that he's a lamb, but he's going to put the wood on his back. You're going to carry the timber of the sacrifice for sin. Not just be the sacrifice for sin, but you will carry the timber of being the sacrifice for sin. It says in... And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so the both of them went together. The fact that it says the both of them went together is interesting because um, what you see here is that the son Isaac is willingly going. And the father is going to willingly uh, inflict. See if you notice parallels in another story. So it's powerful. Fire, knife, wood, lamb. Affirming truth is easy. Acting on truth is hard. And as they're walking up the mountain, a simple sound pierces the air. It says, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, in verse 7, My father. And he says, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the one to be given for our sin? I mean, again, what you see in Isaac is that he's old enough to have a conversation. He's old enough to start connecting the dots. Wait a minute. Something's missing here. We got almost everything. Something's missing. And here is the stick the landing verse, verse 8. And Abraham said, God will provide. God will provide. He'll provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. I love that right there. You could almost stop right there. God will provide. Question. When God puts you to a test, and he says you have everything you need for life and godliness, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? He says this in 2 Peter 1, says it in Ephesians. I mean, you, you, you got it nailed... When he puts you to the test, do you say to yourself, and I know God will provide? I'll I'll tell you, in my own personal life, the answer is, oh, about 30% of the time. The huge majority of the time, I go, I've got to figure this out. I've got to fret this one big. I've got to get ahead of the other guy. I've got to have a good strategy. I've got to outthink this. I've got to outcry this. I've got to outfake this. Whatever it is. So rarely is the response, and God will provide. This has come into my life by His sovereign hand for a reason, and whatever that reason is, God will provide. 
That is the blessing. That is the hope. That is the opportunity. That is the promise. Is that our response? Especially to our children, right? When our children see life difficult, do we sit them down and say, and God will provide? I mean, that makes all the difference. What's the matter with daddy? Oh, he's got a lot on his mind. But God will provide. Why is mommy crying? Oh, there's a lot of things going on. But God will provide. I I don't know what to do, mom and dad, about this thing with school, a teacher, a problem, a friend. You know what, honey? I don't fully know either, but God will provide. What do we do about this dilemma? Well, here's these great verses, because God has provided. See, that is to be the default answer. Now, did he know how? He had no clue how. Right? Like I just told you from Hebrews 11, he thought that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's not what God's going to do. He doesn't know how God's going to provide. Often, I don't know how God's going to provide. But what I know is that God will provide. He's going to provide for himself the solution. So I don't have to always provide solutions in the context of this. But I want you to understand at this point, Abraham is not simply being obedient. He's being obedient in faith. It's not just like, I'll do what I'm told. He trusts God. He believes God. He knows God is at work and God is good and God is loving, even though Abraham doesn't even know how that plays out. I mean, we get into all these philosophical dilemmas again. And, and, and I love this. It's just so simplified. God will provide. And so they both went together again. Isaac is old enough to run. He's old enough to have this conversation, so he's old enough to start putting the pieces together, but instead he is compliant. Reminds me of another story. Not my will, but your will be done. So they go together. And in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. Right? Every other time Abraham has ever built an altar, he's built it on the heels of a promise. God says, I promise to do this. And he would build an altar. He would worship the Lord. Promised to do this. Built an altar. Worship the Lord. This fourth time he's going to build an altar. This one risks all of the other three altars and their promises. Well, wait. All that other stuff is about my future. And now you're threatening my future. That's usually where we get freaked out when it comes to trusting God. Risks our future. But what does he do? It says, and he bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Again, like I said, like Isaac, I think he could beat a dude that's 100 plus. Isaac says, tie me. Tie me. Lay me on the altar. Our whole family is given whatever it is to God, everything. God gets everything. There are no idols anymore. He left idols for the one true God. There's no idols. So bind me, Dad. Lay me on the altar. We trust our God together. Man, I look at that and I go, do I impart that kind of faith to my son? I I don't like I should. It says, then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. The way that's worded in Hebrew is it's like it's a, it's like a, a literary slow motion. You know? He, he reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son, obeyingly, trusting, believing 
God will provide. Going through the literal motions. Like, I would probably like have hit the ripcord already. Whoa, 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 you, you didn't stop this. It's getting really, really bleak. I'm tying him up. I'm, not, I'm tying him. This is where you say enough, right? I'm tying him. Uh, he's up on the altar. That's where you say, good, good. I've, I've proven it, right? No. Hand, knife, bringing it to the throat. And it's in that scene, that moment, that it says, but then the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. He said, Abraham, Abraham. And here he is. Here I am. I'm right here. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham goes all the way through. He acts 100% in faith. And because of that, God holds him up at 99, but accredits to him something where it's like 100. You've done it. You didn't do it, but you've done it. You didn't just think you would do it. You followed through with doing it. You didn't just say, yeah, if it was ever asked of me, I would do it. Hopefully it's never asked. It was asked. And God could see the heart, the mind, the will, the disposition. And so God says, now I know. See, easy obedience. You want to know what easy obedience is in our life? You ready? Easy obedience is agreement. It's agreement. God says, do this and... Oh, that's easy. I agree. That's a good idea. Hard obedience, that's a whole different game. That's a whole different game. That's faith. And so, hard obedience plays out in faith here, and God says, now I know. It's not like God's like, boy, I didn't know until now. Like, I can't see the future. What he's saying is, I intimately know. I've intimately seen. I've watched it unfold. It's not just theoretical. It's not just foresight. I've watched it play out in action. It's a little bit like if you're getting married. You know what's going to happen on the wedding night, but afterwards, you know, right? So it's the same idea. This word, no, it's used in the Old Testament a lot about he knew her, right? It's intimate. It's even sexual. It's like God is saying, now I intimately know. Now I know. At the same time, what's great is Abraham, he could actually say, and now I know. And now I know that I've been tested by God and I really do believe. Now I know that if God asked me to do the hardest thing, I actually trust He will provide. I've been to the hardest place and He showed up. Now I know. In that sense, they both know. And what they know is that Abraham feared God. Did you know fearing God is the most powerful tool at our disposal? The most powerful tool. If you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. Right? You are unstoppable. You are unshakable. You are unwavering because you know God will provide. I know because I fear Him. And when I fear Him, I have nothing else to fear. It says that in Isaiah chapter 8. He says this, Great advice, the Lord has given me strong warning not to think like everyone else does. Everybody else gets afraid of everything. 
He says, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. Don't live in dread for what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. For he will keep you safe. You fear God, you have nothing else to fear. Nothing else. So there's this great scene. God says, no, now I know it says in verse 13, And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And as the ram burned, the message was simple, All we hold dear has been placed on your altar, O God. That's what's going on. All we hold dear is yours. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That word provided is also translated as the word seize, I think in the NIV, that kind of thing. Um, What it's saying is God sees your need and will provide. And God sees why he's doing this test in your life, and he will provide what you need for the test. That's the idea. Whatever that test might be. And so with this all done, it says, And the angel called again to Abraham a second time from heaven. He said, By myself I have sworn, God is declaring by his own name, because you have done this, you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will, first off, surely bless you. God will bless us for obedience. Particularly in the test, he will bless us for obedience. He says, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sands that are on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. They will be numerous, and they will be victorious. And then verse 18, it says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Every one of us in this room is intimately tethered to this story right here. Every one of us. The nations have been blessed by the gospel of Jesus. The nations have been blessed by the power of God. The nations have been blessed by the expansion of the church because there was this day where a father was told to sacrifice his son and he obeyed in faith and passed the test. Had Abraham, during those three days, said, done that, we would not be sitting here. Right? The nations are blessed because of this event. The nations will continue to be blessed because of this event. Because Abraham chose to trust and obey. It's that simple. Obedience has ripples. Has positive ripples. Did you know disobedience has negative ripples? Right? I mean, again, you you, you look at the problem, again, of why is there all this tension in the Middle East? Well, it's because there was this one moment where God said, I want you to obey. I'm going to give you a son. He says, no, I don't believe you. I'm going to go and have this thing with this other gal and have that son ripples that affect our world today in the negative but boy we are here today because we are blessed in the positive so that is their story and their story intersects with our story and our story is simple we all face tests right we all face tests and when we face those tests we have to make a decision Do I trust what God has revealed? Do I trust that God has provided? Do I trust that God is big enough? Or do I say, no, 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 this this is good. This is helpful. I like to memorize this when I want to feel warm and fuzzy. But I don't want to actually have to obey this when it's difficult and challenging. Uh, That's the test we face. 
Because here's the deal. Every single one of us, what God is doing is He's writing this sovereign composition, this sacred music. And every single test, challenge, hardship, grief you face is a note written in that composition into that masterpiece, that sacred music. Every single little thing, big thing, whatever, that's a note in your sacred song that God is writing. And then He gives that to you, and He says, you are to play the music. And then the question is, well, do we play the note sour? Or do we play it boldly? Right? Do we play it with trepidation? Or do we not play it at all? God says, I want you to play every note sweetly, every note with conviction because I am writing your song. Face every one of these things knowing that I will provide. Because tests prove and improve our faith. And you're going to have all sorts of tests. You're going to have tests in your marriage. You're going to have tests in your marriage where you're not even sure your marriage is going to last. You're going to say, God, what should I do? And God's going to say, well, here's what I want you to be as a husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself for her. Whoa, wait, she's just a taker. Yeah, sacrifice yourself. Sacrifice. But, but God, if I do, then, you know, she'll push me around. Yep, I, sacrifice yourself. Well, my husband is just a jerk. What should I do? First Peter chapter 3, right? Submit to him. Love him. Win him without a word. Oh, no, no, but if I'm not speaking lots of words, he's not listening. Trust me, he's not listening anyway if you start speaking lots of words. <laughs> I wish that was funny. You know what I mean? Um... It's just true. The more you bring words, the less he listens. Which is why Peter says, do yourself a favor. Trust and obey. Husbands, trust and obey. Maybe you have an enemy. Somebody that just wants to do you, you harm. So what do you think? I've got to fight back. No, Scripture says, love your enemy, do good to them, pray for them, ask God to bless them. Whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean bless them? I meant smite them. You know, bless them. Trust and obey. You have an enemy, give them water. Be kind. What about money? God says, I want you to do certain things with money. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But you don't know my circumstances. You don't know my situation. You don't know my problems. Trust and obey. You're always going to have a test. Spiritual priorities. Trust and obey. Friends, work, health. Trust and obey because God will provide. God will provide. See, here's the thing. If we take this stuff in our own hands... In the end, we get less. God's deliverance is missed. And then the test is just a drag. It's why James says it this way, count it all joy. Tests are for joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Nothing. I love that. You, I don't want to test. Why not? It will make you a better you. And he's given you what you need to be a better you. Sometimes Christians say, you know what, when I die, I want to stand before the throne and I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You, you know what I, I've decided after reading this this week? I want to stand before the throne and God says to me, now I know. Now I know. I watched you go through that whole life and now I know. And see, I, I want that, and we can live like this, and we can have hope and comfort and focus in trial 
Not because of our story, not because of the story we just read, but because of his story, God's story, Jesus' story, right? Again, reflect on the story. What did we learn? There was one beloved son. Sounds familiar. Sounds like Jesus. Who was taken and had wood strapped to his back. Just like Jesus. He walked up the mountains of Moriah. You know where the mountains of Moriah are? They're the hills of Jerusalem, including Calvary. Right? Abraham took his son Isaac, his one and only son, strapped wood to his back, and took him up into the hills of Calvary. And there the son goes willingly, just as the son of God goes willingly. And there the father is to inflict the sacrifice, just as Father God is going to do that with Jesus. And just as Abraham has the knife and he's about to take his son's life, God says, no, stop. But when it comes to his own son, God plunges in. He takes his son. So Isaac didn't have to be taken by his father's hand. He is our sacrifice. It says that God would provide the lamb. Yes, amen and indeed. Amen and indeed. He provided the lamb that Abraham needed, Isaac needed, the nations to be blessed needed. God provided. Romans chapter 8 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you have what you need for the test? Yes. God will provide. Why? Because God did not spare his own son, but said, I will give him for you, slain, slaughtered, sacrificed, poured out with wrath, so you could have life in abundance and everything you need to get life done. That's what we have in Christ, his story. That's what we have. So then Paul wraps it up this way. This is so great. Verse 35 of Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Right? Who shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer is no. Amen? It's no. Why? Because no test can ruin you. No test can crush you. No test can shove you into the dirt and leave you for dead because God provides. Because of what Jesus has done. So he says, you know, it doesn't matter the problem. It doesn't matter the hardship. It doesn't matter the distress. You know what? I've given you everything you need because I've given my son. Nothing shall separate us. Then he goes on to say, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors through the one who has loved us. It says, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what this passage tells us. We can have the things happen in our life. We can face those as they come full force. And we can look to heaven and say, just like God, now I know. You can say it. You can say, now I know. Because you, God, did not withhold your son from us. Now I know. If you need conviction, 
You need determination. You need fortitude and wherewithal and resolve. You already have it. All you need to say is, now I know. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for the reminder of this story. I thank you for the fact that you have provided. I thank you that now we know. And I pray that we will live in such a way that as we stand before you, you will look at our lives and say, and now I know. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. In your awesome name, amen.